All right, I will invite you to have your Bibles handy. We are not going to any particular passage today as we are in a, uh, a brief topical um, series that relates directly to what we're talking about in Timothy. Of course, we just started Timothy. We were only two weeks in uh, when we, we kind of got sidetracked by this series, but, but needfully so, as we get into 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, we're going to be talking about the rightful use of the law. And uh, the law is good, to, uh, Paul says to Timothy, if it is used lawfully. And yet I certainly did not feel as though we could just leave it there. Uh, as Paul writes to Timothy, he understands Timothy to have been uh, his uh, protege, as it were. And as such, uh, understanding that Timothy already understood much of this. Now we acknowledged already that the book of First Timothy was intended to have a wider reading audience than just Timothy himself. We understand that uh, the way Paul is framing uh, his, even his introduction, we see very clearly that he knew that the letter would be read by churches and such. And yet simultaneously, we see him take a few things for granted, particularly as it relates to the law, uh, which is no problem for us because we have Romans and we have 1 Corinthians and we have Galatians. And the Lord has seen fit to give us these things at our disposal to understand the fullness of, of uh, what Paul is saying when he says that, that the law needs to be used lawfully and then speaks to the law's purpose. So again, we'll get there uh, in several weeks from now. We are in part four, however, of our, our study into the relationship of Christians to the law. Now, last time in our time together, we re- read quite decisive language from Paul telling us that we are not by any means bound to the law of Moses, that it is intended in this life under grace that the law have absolutely no bearing upon the, the weight, have no weight on our lives as it relates to how we live as believers. Now, such uh, dogmatic and direct statements can lead to misunderstandings, which I hope the next three weeks will put to rest. Many have said in their studies and preaching that in relation to the law, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll emphasize this idea that, that the civil law has passed away, but the moral law has been preserved. And what they are attempting to do by, by explaining it that way is to acknowledge, and rightfully so, that there are many elements of the law as it is written that are reflective of transcendent principles. Principles that do indeed apply to every generation, not just to those that were under the covenant of Sinai. And that's not necessarily, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. We're going to talk about how that is today. And so in order to try, to try to highlight that, they say, well, the civil part is done away with, but the moral part remains. Now, the problem that I have with expressing it in those particular words, again, I don't necessarily have a problem with the sentiment as I just defined it, right? Um, it's a good thing I don't have a problem with the way I'm defining things or else we'd, 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 all, we'd all be in trouble. But uh, as I just defined it, I don't have a problem with that sentiment. However, the problem comes in with this then. Who defines what part of the law is the moral law and who defines which part is the civil law as it relates to the covenant of Sinai? Who gets to decide, okay, well, that one's kind of civil, but it's got a moral component, so let's just make it moral. Therefore, I'm bound to it. Well, that one's, that one's got, seems, you know, maybe more, but, but more civil, so I'm not bound to that one. And now we have ourselves in, in just as much of a mess, right? Because now we are in a disagreement about how we are defining the moral versus the civil elements. And then they'll say, well, this one go, is pre-law, so it, we, we, we're probably bound to that. Well, the problem is there are certain things that are pre-law, 
that the Bible explicitly says we're not bound to. And so now we just kind of get this muddied mess. So I'd like us to take a more nuanced perspective this morning than even this idea. As I've preached the last several weeks, I've preached with the same dogmatism that we see reflected, particularly in Paul's writings. And the intent here is not to strip away from anyone, and I think that this has been clear. I don't think anyone could have heard my preaching, and I think I've even said this explicitly, over the last several weeks and said, Pastor Wickler is okay with people sinning, is okay with license, is okay with licentiousness, uh, is okay with those things. I, I, I don't think anyone could, could get there from the way that I've preached this. However, what I have desired to do is kind of strip away uh, anything that might that might place us in, a, in this mindset where I'm, I'm unwilling to say, okay, we've got this element of the law and the law is what it is and now we need to try to bind ourselves to certain elements of it. I, if, if we can just think on a different plane, which is that the law is what it is, it was what it was, Christ has fulfilled that and now I have a, a different standard and there may be a, a plenty of overlap between them in a manner of speaking, but that overlap does not demand or even imply that the law is still in effect. It simply means that the law was a good reflection of the character of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And then we're going to take that and we're going to up the ante. And we're going to, to bring a, another layer onto it, which is how does the New Testament where do we see the reflections of Old Testament law in New Testament doctrine? And, and, and how can we start to frame our mind around these things in order to understand how to direct our thinking on these things? So this is the nuance that I'd like for us to try to gather today from our time together. What if we begin thinking about the law in, in a different way? In Mark 2.27, Jesus said to the Pharisees after picking corn on the Sabbath day that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The idea that, that the, was that the Sabbath was instituted legally as a blessing to man. It was not intended to become a, 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 a burden for man so that if your ox falls into the ditch on the Sabbath day, you can't pull him out. Be a tremendously higher burden to lose that ox than to get rest or to not get rest on the Sabbath day, right? So we have this idea here, not that the, that the Sabbath was not made to bind man, but to help him. And this is an important perspective that Jesus gave about the law and putting the law into its proper place. In the same manner, I'd like us to understand something about the law today. Many people throughout history have acted as if God's character is a reflection of the law rather than understanding in truth that the law is a reflection of God's character. May I say that again? Think about that with me. Many people throughout history have acted as if God's character is a reflection of the law rather than the law being a reflection of God's character. And let me explain what I mean by this. God's character and attributes are constant throughout time, never changing. I am the Lord, I change not, God said, right? We know that God is an unchanging God. Uh, we have a theological term for this. It's called immutability, that God is immutable. It means he does not change, he cannot change, he will not change. And so when we understand that we have an immutable God... Well, then when the Bible says there is none righteous, the standard of righteousness has always been God's character. That God's character has always been the mark that we have, have been 
compared to. That perfection and holiness are defined by God himself. That literally sin, iniquity, transgression, these things are, are defined by the absence of God in them. That, that, that what is wrong is not so much a, a set standard of, of actions, but what is wrong is, God, uh, is a set standard of offense against God himself. God is truth. God is holiness. God is righteousness. God is the standard, right? Now, the law codified the character of God. The law took the character and the attributes of God and, he, and it applied them to a particular nation at a particular time. The law was not the essence of God's character and attributes. The law was a reflection of God's character and attributes. The, God, the, the law did not serve to establish who God is. The law served as a reflection of who God is. Nothing about God. Nothing about who God is, nothing about his attributes, nothing about his holiness, nothing about God depends upon the law itself. The law depends upon God. God does not depend upon the law. Okay? Regardless of whether or not the law of Moses ever came into being, that would change nothing about who God is and, and of man's responsibility to that standard. And furthermore, we understand that the law was actually not a perfect reflection of God. Because the law had to accommodate man's sin. And it, it, in, in, its, in the, the necessity, in a civil sense, of accommodating for man's sin, the law was not a perfect reflection. Let me give you an example of this. Jesus speaking on divorce in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 8. The Bible says the Pharisees also came unto him, that would be Jesus tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, that means two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together... Let not man put asunder. That's, his, that's, that's the answer to his question. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, that's not what the law says. But this is what Jesus just taught. So because what Jesus just taught is not what the law says, they ask a follow-up question. Jesus said, male and female, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Then they say unto him, verse 7, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So the Pharisees tempt Jesus by asking him if it's okay to divorce for any reason. Jesus says, no, that's not okay. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. The end of his answer. The second question comes in, why then does the law accommodate divorce? And Jesus says, because of the hardness of men's hearts. Because the law has to account for the fact that, every, that not everyone's going to do right. And because not everyone is going to do right all the time, because there are complications in life, right? Life is a complicated thing. And the law has to account for those complications. And I mean, certainly, what the law could have just said is, everybody dies. You offend, you die. But then Israel would have wiped itself off the map a long time ago, right? And so there were gradations here. And we see these gradations, and we see this idea that from the beginning it was not so. The, the, the actual perfect reflection of God's character does not allow for that, that, that. 
that, that parting, that, that tearing asunder of what God has joined together. He has made them one flesh. Yet, yet, added to the law of Moses was this particular standard as a means by which to compensate for the hardness of men's hearts. Now, if we regard the law as the very definition of God's character, such things become a problem for us. But if we see, and there have been people, I mean, there are other explanations for this. There are some people that say, well, there's a difference between the law of God, which is the Ten Commandments, and the law of Moses, which were all of the, the extra things that Moses added as an application to the Ten Commandments. And we could get into all of those arguments and such, uh, but, but we're not going to. Um, but do understand that there, I, I am, may I put it this way, I am slightly oversimplifying some people's arguments some people become significantly nuanced in these things, and I don't necessarily, um, of course, based upon, the reason why I don't go there on principle is because of what I've taught you over the last three weeks. Is because the, on principle, if we start, again, if we start to kind of nitpick and separate these things and tear them apart, well, on principle, I say what I believe the scriptures state quite clearly, Paul, Galatians, I through the law am dead to the law that I might live under Christ, Right? And so that kind of settles all of those nuances in my mind. If they're still there with you, I'd be happy to sit down with you and we can parse those things out at some time in a different form. And please let me know uh, if, if you need that of me. I'm here certainly to serve you in that regard. But if we regard the, ver- the law as the very definition of God's character, these things become a problem. If we see the law in, in what I believe the scriptures say quite clearly to be its proper place, if we see the law as given to this people in this time as a strong reflection of God, as a strong reflection of something so much more, but only a shadow, only a reflection of things that are to come, well, then none of this needs to concern us. It doesn't need to concern us that there were these things in the law because that, that was then and, and, and we are called to a different standard and we'll see by the end of our time together, we really are called to a higher standard, a higher standard of living because we have something that they did not have. We have been given something that the Old Testament uh, uh, Israel did not have and that is the spirit of God indwelling us, em- empowering us for the work that God has called us to do, changing our hearts, giving us that new heart. So the law was forged from the template of God's character. It was not forged to become the template of God's character. And this is what we find in the Word of God. We know that we have, uh, uh, as we've considered already, and we'll consider again in a couple of weeks, that the law was made to reveal man's sinfulness to him. This is really the, the thrust of where this series came from, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11, through 11, uh, the very end of Galatians chapter 3, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, right? Uh, we'll see that again later. That sin has always existed as an offense against God's character, but that the law's demands magnify our sinfulness and show us how far how far short we fall of God is really the essence of the law's purpose. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He said, and this is in a parenthetical, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come, the figure of Christ. So Paul says that sin existed Before the law of Moses, the sin was still there. Why? Because of God's character, right? God's character was still there. God's character does not change. So sin existed before the law. 
and yet simultaneously it was not imputed unto man. That God held man accountable only to the extent to which he had told them of himself. Through creation, through conscience, through special revelation. Now we know from Romans chapter 1 that not only is the existence of God capable of being knowing from, known from creation, but that even God's eternal power and Godhead, His authority, His righteousness can be known through creation. We also understand conscience and, and, and the conscience that's been put into every man and the degree to which man can know Him. But, but to the extent that these elements of God's, God's character had not yet been expounded, Sin was not imputed, and yet death still reigned. There was still separation. There was still separation between God and man even before the law existed. So we have this idea here. Death reigned even between Adam and Moses, even among those who had sinned in ways that Adam, uh, ways different from Adam's transgression. Okay, so we knew from Adam and Eve that rebellion is sin, right? Because that separated them. We knew from Cain and Abel that murder is sin because Cain was separated from God. So they began to get this picture of what was acceptable and what was not. And of course, we, we can understand um, various other things. Uh, Noah knew of uh, very clearly of clean and unclean animals because two of every animal got on the boat except for clean animals. Seven of every clean animal got on the boat, right? So we know that clean and unclean animals actually pre-existed the law. We know that the Sabbath pre-existed the law. We know that, that various elements of the sacrificial system, uh, Job and, and, and Abraham and uh, even Cain and Abel, right? Uh, all, we, we see evidence of the sacrificial system. So we know that there was other revelation there. But what Paul is saying here is that even among those things that had not been revealed, that doesn't necessarily mean that God's character is not a part of it. But when the law did come, when the law entered, it heightened, it magnified in a brand new way just how bad man really is. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. He asks, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Uh, sin, Paul says, became exceedingly sinful through the commandment. Now we talked about this a little bit um, last time, so we've already worked through this passage a little bit. But we all understand this idea of something being wrong, but then it becoming... It, it, it becoming magnified when, I, when I'm informed. So maybe you're building a shed or you're a adding something onto your house and, and you have a question about a, a particular code or regulation. So you make the mistake of going and finding out what that regulation is, right? And you, you go and you find out that not only uh, was what you were doing not up to code, but you had about 15,000 other things on your project that you needed permits for and that weren't up to code. And you find out at that time that, there, that, that you know, all of a sudden Pandora's box has been opened and now you've got a hundred other things that need to get done and you almost wish you had never actually gone and asked the question because when you were in ignorance, you, now, now when you were ignorance, you were still breaking the law, right? And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it right. That's not what I'm saying today. This is an illustration, right? I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't ask because, you know, just, you know, we're not pragmatists. Let us do evil that good may come. That's not how we, that's not how we roll, right? That's not, that's not how God would have us to be. God would have us to submit ourselves to the authorities. So that's not what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is we've all been in that situation 
whether it's children with their parents, whether it's us with our government, where you ask a question or, or, or whatever the case may be, uh, you, you, you know, my, my child comes in and, and she wants to ask me a question about whether or not she can have uh, a cookie and she happens to be wearing uh, something, a hat or whatever, and I say, not only can you not have the cookie, but you're not supposed to be wearing that hat. And she walks away saying, man, if I hadn't gone in, I could have kept wearing the hat. Because now that dad saw me, I can't wear the hat anymore. Well, yes, but you shouldn't have been wearing the hat, whether or not, right? It's not that you were not doing something wrong before. It's just now you know it. We've been there before. And that's what the law did. When God gave the law, sin became exceeding sinful. We see this in the day of, of Josiah. Josiah was a good king, loved the Lord, was zealous for the Lord. Uh, and one day he said, the temple needs to be cleaned up because it had been fallen into disrepair. So he sends in the priest to clean up the temple. And the priests come out and they say, hey, king, we found this scroll. We found this book. And what they found was the law. And said, we really need to read this to you. So they read the law. And Josiah, who had done many good things, who had, who had cleaned up the idols and who had uh, reinitiated sacrifices. And he says, if this is the standard unto which we're being held, we are in trouble. And they went and, and uh, consulted with the prophetess. And she said, yep, you're in trouble. God says you're in trouble. Now, they didn't know the law, but the law was still in effect. But they found out when they finally read the law just how in trouble they really were. This is that idea here. When God gave the law, sin became exceeding sinful. The realities of God's character were expounded in new ways. But remember, the law did not define God's character. It only reflects God's character. And now on the authority of God's word, as we've studied over the last several weeks, that reflection is done away. Under grace, we don't rest under the obligation of that reflection but that doesn't mean we don't rest under the obligation of God's character. God's character is still God's character. God is unchanging. Sin doesn't go away just because the law is fulfilled in Christ. Holiness doesn't go away just because the law goes away. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. Don't see the law and, and, and any statement of the law being fulfilled in Christ or any statement of us being dead to the law, as Paul says it, as us being dead to God's holiness or God's character. That's not true. We are just delivered from the bounds of this precept, this burden, this weight, this condemnation. The law was a reflection of God's character. Sin was a partial representation of what God wanted man to become until such a time as God brought it about in Christ. So the Bible says this as it relates particularly to the sacrificial system of the law in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there unto perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered, but that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Skipping to verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. 
by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering the offerings oftentimes the same and often offering oftentimes, excuse me, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So what we find here is, is I presume that Paul wrote Hebrews. Of course, there's debate about that. But what I believe Paul is saying here, as it relates to the law, he speaks of the sacrificial system. And he says that the, the law and the sacrifices were a shadow of good things to come. Not the essence of God's plan, but a preview of God's plan. The law was a placeholder given by God to curb transgressions until such time as God could actually bring his plan about in history through Jesus Christ. And once that plan is enacted, once that plan is received, the law becomes a remnant of a different time and a different circumstance. You've seen before, perhaps, you've been, uh, maybe you've needed one before. You've been working on your house, you've been remodeling, whatever the case may be, and you have to move a load-bearing wall. And so you get one of those temporary jacks, and as you take out the wall, you put a temporary jack up to uh, form, to, to, to replace the beam that you're taking out until such time as you can readjust the house uh, so that the, the, the walls and the, the ceiling doesn't collapse under, under its own weight. And then once you are finished with the job that needs to be done, you remove that temporary jack because now things have been reconfigured, Right? And so we have the law, which the Bible says was put in place because of transgressions for a time. It was a temporary jack to hold up the whole system to show man his sin while simultaneously keeping man's sin at bay until such time as sin could be dealt with. And it had to be dealt with in God's time in history. And that time in history came at the time when Jesus came. And he dealt with it in part. He dealt with it on the spiritual side. The rest of it, of course, will come at his second coming. And so we had this, this jack that was there to keep the system afloat until such time as Christ could be put in place in history, at which time that jack can be removed from the load-bearing duties because it's done its job. It's done its job. Existing as a shadow of something better, insufficient for the needs of man, but there to hold things in place until the better promises could be established. And then the first is taken away that the second may be established. The body of Christ, which was offered once for all. So Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19, and then we'll, we'll read verse 21. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had not been a law which, for if there had been a law which, uh, excuse me, let me, let me read instead of, <laughs> for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. The law was added because of transgressions to curb mankind's evil only until the seed should come that would deal with it in a better way, in a deeper way, that would change people from the inside out rather than from the outside in. 
So once again, we see that the law came and went not to define God, not to put God in a box, but to reflect God as a shadow of that which is to come. And notice then what Paul goes on to say here in verse 21. The law was not against the promises of God, but it wasn't the promises of God either. If there had been a law which could have possibly given life, then righteousness could have come by the law. If there was a law that could possibly have actually given us a relationship with God in the way that God intends, then righteousness should have, could have come by the law. But it cannot give life. What has Paul said? What did he say in Romans? What does he say in Romans 6, 7, and 8? We walked through it last week. The law which was ordained unto life, works in man death. Because it has no capacity to bring about relationship. It has no capacity to bring about reconciliation. It only has the capacity to show me just how far short I fall. That's all the law has the power to do, according to the word of God. But that doesn't mean God's character has been diminished by one iota. That doesn't mean the law cannot help us understand the character of God. The law can be used to help us if we use it properly. The law can offer us elements of reflection. It can give us thought, uh, uh, it, can, it can lead our thought process down to principles. Why did God put that there? What principle, what element of his character was that intending to reflect that I can draw out and seek to reflect that same character in the manner in which I live my life? What element of God's character as it relates to false weights and balances, as it relates to the not mixing of fabrics, as it relates to uh, um, the, the cleansing rituals, as it relates to uh, the, the tithe, as it relates to the Sabbath, as it relates to these things, what elements of God's character are reflected in that? What elements of principle can I draw from that and thus enact in my life in some way that reflects God properly? And this is valuable to us. So I showed you this simple graphic earlier. If the law of Moses had never existed, this would not change one thing about our relationship with Christ. But because Christ is the word of God in flesh, because the great mystery of godliness is that God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the spirit, because Christ is, as Paul said, the end of the law, that not meaning that the law ends, but that he is the, the, the fulfillment. He is the end point. He is the, the, the end goal, that all the law points to him, that the path of the law ends at the door of Christ. Because Christ is the end point of the law to all that believe, thus the law by which we live, which is the very bounds of Christ's character, is not simply a reflection of God's, God's character, but if I'm following Christ, if I bind myself to the character of Christ, and if Jesus Christ is the word of God made flesh then my standard is not the law of Moses at Sinai. My standard is God himself. Right? My standard is Christ. My goal every day is not to aspire unto some civil, ceremonial, or moral set of precepts. My goal every day is to wake up and follow Christ. Follow me, Jesus said. Take up your cross and follow me. Walk in the Spirit. Paul said, I die daily. The very character of Jesus Christ. And God could not lay this on any generation before the church. Because the only way any man can possibly live this way is by not living at all. 
Right? Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The only possible way any person can aspire unto this is through the Spirit of God. The indwelling Spirit of God bearing in us the fruit of the Spirit, working in us unto Christ, giving us a new heart, a new mind. For it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, the Scriptures tell us. Until the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that capacity was not there. And so there was a law added for transgressions. But when Christ comes, things change. Now we'll talk more about that. The law of Christ will be our focal point over the next two weeks. It boils down to this essence. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, and love thy neighbor as thyself. We'll see how that plays out over the next two weeks. Now all of this is intended to lay a groundwork for what I want to show you today. I want us to take the essence of the Old Testament law and see how that essence is reflected in, in the law of Christ. So remember, the, law, the Old Testament law is a reflection of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. Therefore, the law of Christ, the law of liberty, that law unto which we aspire, is the very thing that the law of Moses reflected. So then what, do we, what can we draw? How can we draw? And we'll particularly focus in on those Ten Commandments. Where do those play out in the Christian life today? How do we see those reflected? And as such, we'll see an element of, of uh, how it is that we can take the Old Testament law and we can understand it, appreciate it for what it was, but also see how it's reflected in the New Testament without binding ourselves to its precepts, its death, or its guilt. And that's what I'd like us to do with our remaining time together. And I hope to show how these principles bear out. So the essence of the Old Testament law is broken up into ten primary commandments. We call these the Ten Commandments. And there's one that on there that um, I have obey parents. I would change that to honor parents if I could go back in time a couple of hours and modify that slide. Um, honor parents would be a better, better uh, description of that than actually obey parents there. Uh, the essence of the Old Testament law is broken up into these ten commandments. These commandments are based upon uh, two higher commands, which uh, the Old Testament uh, scholars identified when Jesus is, is uh, speaking to the Pharisees and to the lawyers and such and, and uh, they talk about the two great commandments they say love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and love thy neighbor as thyself and so we have these two and, and as we talk about the ten commandments some people break them up into four commandments toward God loving God and um, six commandments toward neighbor so they would add honor your parents to the bottom set I disagree um, we've talked about that before. Um, you don't get to choose your parents, right? God gives you those. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. I, I think that, that this is broken up into five and five, and that God sees honoring your parents significantly more uh, about your relationship with God than necessarily your relationship with your parents, now, then we have these ones that are actually about your relationship to others. These are, these are elements where you're interacting with others and, um, uh, you know, for, for society and for, for uh, civil interaction. Uh, and notice, and what, what we find as we if, we, if we start with the two, love God and love your neighbor, and then we go to the ten, and then we, we boil down to what, what Juda, uh, Judaistic tradition has uh, cited to be 613 laws, 
in the Torah that they've identified. And with each step that we take toward more and more laws, we focus significantly more on actions and less on intentions. See, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, these are our heart commandments. These commandments are rooted very much in intention and in heart. Now, to do these 10 things that loving God and loving your neighbor are broken into, these are still very heart-related ideas, but they become significantly more about action. Now we're defining certain actions. What does it mean to love God? Well, no graven images, right? Uh, loving God means keeping the Sabbath day. Loving God means honoring your parents. Loving God means these things. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, don't kill them. It's a good way to start, a good place to start, right? Uh, don't, don't lie to them. Don't take things from them that are not yours. Don't, don't, don't take from other people. The, these things are, now we're, now we're starting to define what it means to love my neighbor in actions. And then, of course, we boil down to the, the 613, and now we're really defining this, right? Uh, now we're really defining what it means to, to uh, take a Sabbath day. Don't kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. Don't do this. Don't do that, right? Uh, don't um, uh, uh, the elements of, of lying, of deception, and of such, um, the, the stealing, the murdering, the coveting, all of these different things. And so as we get more and more laws put into place, we become less focused in intention, in heart, and more focused on action. And so we see when Jesus came that he comes and he fundamentally re seeks to readjust the thinking of the Jews on this. They boiled everything down so much to action that they, they were able to do it without any heart, without any intention. We're well familiar with Jesus' heightened standards as it relates to several of the Ten Commandments found in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. But whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. This is a, a, a exclusively an action-based thing, right? Don't kill. If you kill, you get judged. But I say unto you, he says in verse 22, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So Jesus says, here's the thing. It starts in your heart. Right? Even these lower levels of hatred are just as bad as murder. It's, it's murder. You hate a brother, you've murdered him already. Skip to verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Again, ye have heard... Uh, no, uh, no, we'll stop there for just a moment. So we, we see this with adultery as well, right? Again, in, in the law, because the law is focused on externals, on actions, you, you commit adultery, you're guilty. But it cannot, the law has no means by which to police my thoughts, has no means by which to police my fantasies, what I would do if I could. Jesus says, but what you would do if you could matters to God. It's a part of the standard. You're not really loving your neighbor if you're lusting after your neighbor in your heart. You're not really loving your neighbor if you have already murdered them in your heart, if you hate them in your heart. It doesn't matter if every time you see your neighbor, you smile and wave. If you walk away saying all men are evil against them in your heart, you don't love your neighbor. But the law can't police that because it's in here. 
verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said of them of old time. Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. And, and it goes on. Uh, verse, uh, we, we skip to verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 43, we jump to. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So the law of Moses was defined by actions. I don't murder someone, I've obeyed the law of Moses. But just because a man has obeyed the law of Moses doesn't mean he is right with God. So when Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the law, he came to draw them to a standard beyond the law of Moses. He came just to draw them to a standard of the law of Christ upon the character of God himself. And according to the law of Christ, what is in my heart is just as real as what I do with my actions. That if I hate a man, I've murdered him already. That if I lust after a woman, I've committed adultery with her already in my heart. And this standard is the one that the apostles teach throughout. Paul speaks of loving our enemies in Romans chapter 12 and uh, of not avenging ourselves on evil. Uh, James calls hatred and fighting murder in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And so we're called to love God. We're called to love one another. And that because of the essence of Christ's character. We are called to follow Christ. So the law was a reflection of Christ. Right? It did, but it couldn't do everything. It had no capacity to reflect the heart motive. And so it was a reflection, right? Murder's still bad. Adultery's still bad. Coveting's still bad. Lust, you know, these things are still bad. But that's not the essence of God. It's only a reflection of an element of God. All right? Let's see a few more. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat that same spiritual meat and did all drink that same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And he goes on and I'm, I'm going to skip some of what I had here for the sake of time. Um, he talks about there being no temptation that, that we cannot endure through Christ, that he gives us no temptation without a way of escape, that we may be able to bear it, calls for us to flee from idolatry, and then speaks um, to this end. I'm, I'm going to jump here to verse 14. Wherefore, my, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as unto wise men, judge you what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break... Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. 
for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then? What am I saying here, he says? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils, and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We're going to come across this again next week and focus our time on some of these elements. So I'm going to skip some of that this week. But within this passage, we see an interesting thing here. Paul uses several of Israel's follies as it related to their breaking of the law and and their, their breaking of the commandments as examples for us. Particularly four sins we see warned against. Idolatry, which covers the first couple of commandments. Fornication, covetousness. And we see these, these commandments being broken. And Paul says that we need to take heed lest we fall into such sins. Well, then the question becomes this. Okay, so Paul, is he invoking the law here? Is he saying that we are bound to the law by this? He says, flee from idolatry. But notice then what he says. We read it beginning in verse 14. He says, flee from idolatry. And notice that he doesn't then appeal to some legal standard for the reason with which we should flee. He says this. He, he appeals to a relational standard. He says, flee from idolatry. And then he brings up communion. He says, flee from idolatry. And the reason is communion. That we partake of the Lord as we partake together in communion. Now, again, the idea there is that, we are, uh, that, that there is a spiritual communion, right? That we are, we are declaring, that we are, are showing, that we are memorializing the Lord's death. That as such, that when we eat of this, again, the elements are nothing. He even says here, the meat, the drink, that, that's nothing. The point there is that I am proclaiming as I eat these things that I am partaking of the Lord. That I am in the Lord and the Lord is in me. I am proclaiming fellowship. I am demonstrating fellowship. I am announcing fellowship with Christ. Well, then can I go directly from the table of the Lord and go out and eat something that proclaims direct fellowship with the devil and find, an inc- and, and find consistency in that? It's not about the meat and the drink. But it's about idolatry, fornication, and covetousness separating me in fellowship from God. It is about an inconsistency with me seeking fellowship with God and the fellowship of darkness simultaneously. It's not about a legal standard here. It's about a relational standard. How can I be in communion with Christ, walking in the Spirit, abiding with Him, and operate in a manner that is contradictory to His character? How can I be in communion with Christ and yet also commune with devils? It cannot be so. Jesus said, "Ye cannot serve God and mammon. No man can serve two masters, he would say. Right? The focus is upon fellowship and intent. The focus is upon the standard of Christ. It's not about the legal standard of fornication and covetousness and idolatry. It's about, can I aspire unto Christ? Can I fellowship with Christ? Can I be right with Christ as I'm communing with devils? I can't. And so so I can't do that. Now again, does this mean that they couldn't eat meat sacrificed unto idols. Can we make that a legal standard in the church? Well, we can't because in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul specific, just two chapters before this, Paul specifically taught them on this. And again, we will cover that in two weeks. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip 
uh, some of that today. But the point for today is this. The law reflects valuable things. If we see it as a reflection of God's character and we, we keep it for what it is, which is, okay, there are elements of God's character here that matter. And I can draw those out, but not bind myself to its precepts, to its, to its, its condemnations. Well, that, that's good because the law is a reflection of that character. But then there are so many other places where it's not enough. Murder, adultery, all these things. It's not enough. Now, if my heart's in the right place, it's probably going to look, a, my life's probably going to look a lot like the reflection of the law with maybe, you know, some diversions in grace. But there's a mindset difference, isn't there? I'm going to flee from idolatry. I'm going to flee from fornication. I'm going to flee from covetousness because I can't, Drink the cup of the, the Lord and the cup of the devil simultaneously. It's not because there's this code. There's this thing hanging over my head. It's because I want Christ. It's because I need a relationship with Christ. It's because Christ in me is what I aspire unto. Now, we've talked about several of the commandments. Of course, we see this same reflection. Uh, probably the most clear and, and one, obvious one-to-one reflection is, is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. No controversy here. If you love God, you obey your parents. You honor your parents. In fact, I'd say that nine of the Ten Commandments, uh, the reflection of of God in the commandment is, is brought over to the New Testament quite clearly. The one exception being the Sabbath day. The only one which bears no full physical reflection as it relates to command is the Sabbath day. Not only do we see the command to honor a Sabbath day not repeated in the New Testament, but we actually see uh, explicit warnings about the idea of binding ourselves to a day in the scriptures. Jumping into context here, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. He says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another man esteemeth every day alike. Again, we'll, we'll cover this more in detail in two weeks. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. He that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. We'll cover this more uh, in, in the weeks to come. Paul states that some men regard one day above another as unto the Lord. Other men regard every day uh, alike, as if there's no specialness to one day above another uh, in the Lord. And as long as the man is doing what he's doing as unto the Lord, fully persuaded in his own conscience, not deceiving himself, not validating his sinfulness, not using this as an excuse to sin or of laziness, but honestly and genuinely under this conviction, then don't worry about him. He'll answer to God. That's what it will go on to say, which we'll cover in two weeks. Paul goes on to say here, every man rises and falls before his own master. So you, if you think he's, probably, he's got something out of balance, well, you know what? Leave him to God. God will take care of him. Paul gets even more clear about the, the Sabbath commandment in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect to an holy day, that would be a holiday, or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Right? Those things, the Sabbath days, the holidays, the, the new moons, the feasts, those were a shadow. They were a shadow of something. They were a shadow of Christ. 
We know how the feasts reflected Christ. We know how the Sabbath reflects Christ. I'm going to teach you more about that in just a moment. The body, is not, the body is not of the law. The body is of Christ. The body is of grace. It's not of debt. The body is of liberty. It is not of condemnation. We saw this already. Hebrews chapter 10, that the law existed as a shadow of something better. If you see great value in these things, if you see great value in the holidays and in the Sabbath days, you know, we all have a, a different standard for how important the holidays are to us. Some people now... Uh, even among our assembly. There are some people that absolutely love Christmas. There are some people that think Christmas is evil, right? There are some people that absolutely uh, love, love the, the holidays for what they, they reflect about Christian principles. And there are some people that, that outright reject them. And we have them all in our midst. And that's okay. Let each man be persuaded in his own mind. We will all stand before the Lord and rise and fall before him on that day. If you see value in the law as it relates to the diet, eating kosher, or in Romans chapter 14, Paul actually goes all the way back to some people eat meat, some only eat herbs. Some people went all the way back to the, the, the pre-diluvian, the Noahic days, and say, no, before the flood, people, only, people didn't eat meat. That means that God must have designed it to where we could live without meat. So we're going to go back to not eating meat. Okay, do it. That's fine. But don't judge a man, right? If you, see, if you see value in some of these reflections, great, as unto the Lord, wonderful. But when you start to uphold those values that are found in, in, in these elements of liberty and you bind other people to them and judge other people by them, now you've gotten out of balance. Now we're in a place where we are destroying the work of God for the sake of meat. We are, we are actually separating ourselves one from another for the sake of, of things that, that in the Lord we, we do have liberty. And then we become a broken fellowship. And we cannot be effective anymore because we're so busy fighting among ourselves to actually go out and, and, and to do the job that God has called us to do. Now, I know that there are, there are lines here. And the whole reason why there's 18 churches in Buffalo is because there are other churches that would probably agree with most of what I'm saying here, but we draw the lines in different places. Where's the line, right? Where's the line about dress? Where's the line about music? Where's the line about this? And we have drawn those lines in different places. It's not that they don't see lines. Some of them don't, but it's not that they all don't see lines, but it's that we have drawn the lines in different places. And by necessity, there, there might need to be some level of, of division as it relates to worship. It's unfortunate it's, it's entirely human. It's certainly not divine. But it is what it is because we live in a very sinful, sin-sick, fallen world. But what we don't want to do is get to the point where we are willing to threaten the principles of grace and liberty for the sake of binding ourselves to a legal standard of which we have been made, by which, from which, excuse the right preposition, we have been made free. So if we depart from grace in our zeal unto a standard, we have done ourselves and others no service. And this is what we need to be careful for. Again, it's not a problem to see these values, to reflect these values, to reflect the law in our lives. If you want to do that, I, I particularly respect those completed Jews, those Messianic Jews who maintain a loyalty to their Judaistic roots as it relates to the law. I think there's value there for them. I think it's a way for them to reach the people that they, their own people. Paul said, to the Jew, I become as Jews that I may win the Jews. To the lawless, I become as lawless, not, law, not against the law of Christ, 
but against the law of Moses is what he means there. And he explicitly says that, that I may win them that are without the law. And so there's value in that, particularly for the Messianic Jew. Bind yourself to the Sabbath, Messianic Jew. Bind your, go do that, fine. But understand your liberty. Don't bind me to that. Just because you're going to bind that. We have liberty, right? This is the idea here. And here's the thing about this. I can keep every one of the 613 Torah commands in utter sinfulness, can't I? I can do anything in utter sinfulness depending on my heart motive. If you come to church with a heart of pride and selfishness and self-righteousness, seeking to elevate yourself, looking for others to, to, to commend you, looking for some means by which for others to think you godly and, and in self-righteousness uh, or, um, or uh, some other selfish motive coming to church, look, there's no virtue in that. There's no virtue in that. This is that idea that Jesus said, right, when he talked about worship in Matthew 7, that if you come to the altar and realize you have ought against a brother, make it right with the brother, then come to the altar. That if you're going to pray, pray in secret, and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you openly because that man that's praying to be seen of men has no reward from the Lord because he's doing it to be seen of men. That's the idea here. Now, of course, there are a number of things that you cannot do with a heart that's right toward God. Right? I can't explicitly, fundamentally be proud in righteousness. Uh, I cannot fundamentally commit adultery in righteousness, right? In faith. That doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. So there are explicitly fundamental sins. Jesus would say in Matthew 15, 11, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth the man, but that which cometh out of the mouth defileth the man. So we have this idea. Now, back to the Sabbath day. I told you I was going to tell you how I think this plays out in the New Testament. And I think we find it in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Now, I normally do really good at trying to, to uh, keep these things good, but I'm having to skip some stuff today. I apologize for that. Um, but let's, uh, let's, let's plug on here. I think we're, we are, we're, we're, we're getting there. Okay, so in he Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, we read this. Take heed, brethren... Lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the, the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ. Take note of that. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation for some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom he was grieved, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So Paul warns here Christians based upon the example of Israel in the wilderness. And he states that many in that time of Israel, as they were leaving the Exodus, provoked God unto wrath, hardening their hearts against him, and in doing so decreed that that generation would not enter into his rest. Now remember how we just saw this idea that, that the law was a shadow and that it was fulfilled in Christ. And we said that we can see this in the sacrificial system, that it was a shadow that was fulfilled in Christ. And I mentioned the Sabbath day there. And we saw in this particular passage that we are made partakers of Christ. And then Paul warns them here to not fall short of this rest. 
Do take note that Paul is warning Christians here, and he's not warning them about falling short of salvation. Unfortunately, throughout the centuries, the church has taken the, uh, the idea of the promised land to be a picture of heaven. And that's something which I believe the, 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 the scriptures don't bear out very well. We even read, uh, sang it today in Sweet Hour of Prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, may I thy consolation share till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height I view my home and take my flight. Mount Pisgah was the mountain that Moses climbed to look out at the promised land before he died. And so the idea of, of climbing Mount Pisgah's lofty heights, viewing our home and taking our flight, then he says, this robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize. Uh, we understand this poetic language, but in this poetic language, Moses is looking over the promised land and then he, he doesn't make it, right? He dies. And um, that promised land, many people have said, is heaven. We also see it oftentimes with the crossing of the Jordan. We'll sing songs about how we'll cross the Jordan into our heavenly home. Uh, however, the, the, it, there's, a, there's a lot of problems with the promised land being heaven uh, from, a, from a, a metaphorical perspective. Uh, when we get to heaven, when we cross our Jordan, if we want to say it that way, we're not going to have walls to tear down. We're not going to have giants in the land. We're not going to have enemies to fight. That's done. And so I see, the, I see the promised land significantly more of a reflection of victorious Christian living than the promised land is actually heaven, right? The promised land is that place in which we go. And so if we see this that way, then what Paul is doing here is he's warning against falling short of something other than heaven and this particular thing he calls God's rest, all right, now God's rest in this case being Canaan. He uh, quotes there from Psalm 95 as well. The context continues in chapter 4. He says this, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them in that day. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Now there's our Sabbath, right? That is the very foundation for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is founded in, in God resting from his work on the seventh day. Notice what Paul then says. And in this place, again, if they, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying to David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Um, for if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. So the first nine verses here of Hebrews chapter 4, Paul traces this principle of rest all the way back to God resting on the seventh day, that on the seventh day God rested from his work. This is a reflection in this idea that, that um, God had promised rest to the people of God and that they entered not into that rest because of unbelief and so they were overthrown in the wilderness and then going all the way in Psalm 95 to God exhorting David saying even after they had found the promise, I mean they were in the promised land, right, in David's day and yet still exhorting him to enter into God's rest, right? So they did not fully enter into God's rest just by entering into the promised land. Why? Because they had not retained all of the promises because they had not entered in by faith. And so we see this idea that entering in by faith, not heaven, 
but into a right relationship with God, into, in our day, victorious Christian living. What does this mean then? Paul says there remains a rest for the people of God and that the man who enters into this rest does so the same way God entered into his rest, by ceasing from his own works as God ceased from his. And so we see in our King James Bibles this exhortation in verse 9 through 11. Verse 11, let us therefore, or let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. That word labor there does not actually mean to work. It means to hasten or to be earnest unto. Have an eagerness about. Now think about this with me. If the call for it, I mean, it'd be hard to labor to enter into ceasing from your own work, right? So we know that that word doesn't mean work. It means hasten. Now, yeah, think through this with me. If the call is for us to enter into heaven and we are to hasten into that rest, we're to work or to hasten or to eagerly bring ourselves to that place, how can I gain it from ceasing from my own works, right? That doesn't make sense. Ceasing from my own works in the sense of unbelief, of course, or of faith. If we don't enter into that rest until we die and go to heaven, then what does that have to do with me hastening to cease from my own works? But if the rest is Christ himself, then this rest that bears out a reflection of the Sabbath day is not being born again because he's telling believers here to try to enter into this rest, but rather to abide in Christ, to enter into an abiding, victorious Christian life, living by faith. Faith is the point. Don't fall short through unbelief. What does the Bible say? The just shall live by faith, ceasing from my own works as God did from him. I have quoted it already, but this is what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I believe this is the Sabbath for the New Testament believer. Now, again, there'd be a lot of people that might argue with me about this. That's fine. There's not a lot of commentators that don't believe Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about heaven. So I'm a little bit in the minority here. But when I see Paul exhort a group of Christians to labor to enter into God's rest, and I see the example of Israel, who was bat- who were, that mixed multitude was baptized unto Moses through the water and through the, through, through the pillar, and yet they fell short through unbelief of the promised land, which I don't see as heaven. I, I have a hard time seeing it as heaven. Then it leads me to this idea that just as Christ has fulfilled all elements of the law, Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath. And if that is the case, then every day and every moment I can be living in the Sabbath as I am abiding in Christ. I am ceasing from my own works and I am living in Christ. And I am abiding in the Sabbath. Now, does this mean... Does this mean that we should not take a one in seven? I don't think so. I think God has built our bodies a certain way. If you don't take rest, you're going to break down. You can't just push yourself. So does it mean that we cannot draw from, a one, from, from the weak principle, from the one in seven principle value? No, of course we can. Of course we can. Does it mean that we should not set, a day, set aside a day for worship? No, I don't think so. I think it's good that we have a day set aside for worship. And yet Romans 14 says, if, every man, if, if, if a man regards every day alike, that's okay. And so we have this idea, Christ living in me, living in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God, crucified with Christ. Every moment I live this way, every moment I'm walking by faith, every moment I walk in the Spirit, every moment I'm abiding in Christ, I am living in God's Sabbath. I am fulfilling God's Sabbath. I'm fulfilling the law. 
The law of Moses reflects many useful, wonderful principles which are beneficial to life and godliness. And that's the point. As a reflection of God's character, the law contains that which is good and is beneficial by nature. But good and beneficial is very different from a legal requirement. Any virtue can become a vice when the heart is wrong. I can't say that just because I'm doing certain things and not doing others that I am right with God. Those of you that know me understand, and I hope you see my goal here, is not, that we should not throw out the baby with the bathwater. My point in all of this is not to turn you into libertines, thinking that you are free to do whatever you want and that God has no opinion on the matter. But there is another danger in our midst, and that danger is that we make clean the outside of our cup because we live by standards, and we make clean the outside of the cup while simultaneously the inside is filthy. And this is easy to do within our circles in particular. The danger is that I serve the Lord in action but not in heart. And because we are generally unified in standards and because we see this, and and that unity is good. I mean, it it creates a homogeneity which gives our children safety and consistency and gives us safety and consistency and such. But it makes it easy to produce something in the flesh rather than in the spirit. Where I serve him but I don't love him. I live under an abiding burden of doing things rather than the joy of living and serving. And it's particularly important with our children that they understand the differences. That they under, because your children will inevitably and invariably see, particularly before they're believers, see elements of what you do as, what, of the standards you've chosen as a burden. And if they live their whole lives feeling yoked to a burden, they're, they're going to miss something of grace. But if they understand the idea that we have grace, but then we are choosing as a family for these particular reasons of safety and not associating with devils and all of these things to, to bind ourselves to a certain manner of living in the Lord and thanksgiving to the Lord for His glory and by His grace, then they'll understand properly the relationship of what we do to where our heart lies. And if we are very careful, we must be very careful to make sure that we are helping our children get to the right heart, not get to the right actions. Because if we just get them to the right actions, then we're in trouble. They're in trouble. Because their faith might collapse under them at some point if their faith is just bound in actions. But, or they live their whole lives just feeling bad about themselves. <laughs> feeling constantly under a burden and under weight and under guilt and under shame because they can't measure up. And then they become hypocrites because it's the only way they can get others off their back is by looking something that they don't feel. And they know they don't feel it, but they look it. And then when somebody comes and preaches libertinism, licentiousness to them, misinterprets the word of God as it relates to the law and tells them you're not bound by the law and they read it and they see that, then they throw out all of the standards with their their guilt. And then they become, they, they, they take advantage of grace. They live in sin that grace may abound. God forbid that any of that should happen to our children. God forbid that that should happen to this generation. In the Spirit, we find the liberty to walk in grace, led by Christ, empowered by His Spirit, but, but, but unto holiness. We'll see that next week. We are freed from the law to live unto holiness, not impurity, not unto, unto sensuality. The Spirit of God compels compels us to no less than this. So I ask you today, and I'm sorry I had to skip some things. I hope what I skipped 
isn't going to cause a breakdown of, of you tracing my thought here. But I ask you as we finish today, how are you doing? Are you living in this right balance? It isn't wrong to live under the bounds of various aspects of the shadow that is the law. But have you related it wrongly to yourself, to others? Have you been operating outside of grace? Have you been judging others by the standards which Christ has imposed on your heart through the Spirit and judging others by your imposed standards? Have you seen grace as a license to sin? Have you gone the other way? Forgetting or just ignoring the reality that life under grace is not a downgrade in God's expectations, but by every measurable standard, life... I mean, how much easier is it to keep one day of rest a week than to abide in Christ 24-7? You know? To, to keep the Sabbath, <laughs> if I'm right about that interpretation in Hebrews 3 and 4, is to walk moment by moment, to abide moment by moment. Now, it's not hard in the sense that I'm submitting to Christ and Christ is working it in me, but it means my heart has to be right. I can't just check, it off, check, check a day off my, my, my list. Maybe you've never really thought about this. Maybe you've just kind of done what you've done. And that's, that's fine. But it's maybe time for you to do so. To grow and spiritually set down principles upon which you stand, within which you operate in liberty. So that you may follow the law of Christ, loving the Lord with all your heart and might, loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's where we'll go next week. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.